Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and as always, I'm really glad to have you here. In a recent class that I took that combined mindfulness and generative somatics, one of the very wise instructors asked us, what do you need to heal to support your capacity to be with the unknown? It's definitely a profound question and I certainly don't have a clear answer, but what I do know, what I have learned alongside my friend, colleague and podcast guest is that what needs healing is the part of me that is focused on doing rather than feeling so critical to set limits based on my own need for support and care so that I can be with the unknown, the unpredictability of the world, individual and collective pain and grief, all that emerges. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to interview Onyx Fuji and share some of our collaboration with you. We are both trying in our own ways and together to lean into the roles that feel sustainable in our lives and to turn toward the self, see and feel the self and move away from the confines of being chronically ill bodies that are doing more often than feeling. Onyx Fuji is a queer, non-binary, chronically ill, mixed race clinical social worker living and practicing trauma-informed psychotherapy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on Lenny Lenape land. They are a cultural humility consultant and a group facilitator, as well as being a lifelong East Coaster, a cancer, a writer, and a parent. Onyx's professional practices and writing center the intersections of identity, trauma, invisibility, and connection. In the interview, you will hear much more about how our collaborative talks made way for our Scorpio baby to come into this world. We are so excited to introduce our business to all of you on this winter solstice. As I say in the interview, I couldn't do it alone, and I am grateful to Onyx for accompanying me on this journey. So here it is, Pinsugi Therapist Collective, a community of therapists dedicated to embodied and liberatory visions of care. Kintsugi Therapist Collective, KTC, is a virtual community offering embodied care, support, wisdom, and resources to trans and non-binary, BIPOC, chronically ill, and disabled mental health providers. We aim to help other similarly situated clinicians build gainful income streams that do not rely on the same level of constantly reliable physical, mental, and emotional presence that is embedded 
in extractive business models and clinical training programs. We believe our private practices in collaboration with the support of the collective can provide stability for our complicated bodies, not only existing for everyone else at the detriment of our well-being. The centerpiece of KTC is the embodied private practice cohort. The embodied private practice cohort is a year-long mentorship for clinicians who are beginning or revisioning private practice with a focus on embodiment and sustainability. Combining reality-based, capacity-conscious clinical and business consultation and utilizing both individual and group process, mentorship will focus on the ways that therapists can be nurtured by clinical practice, avoid burnout, and commit to sustainability, self-care, and healing. You want to learn more about Kintsugi Therapist Collective, and I hope you do, find us at www.kintsugitherapistcollective.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Kintsugi Therapist Collective. All links are going to be in the show notes. We would be really honored if you shared the news of our business to friends, colleagues, fellow space holders. And thank you so much for your ongoing support. Even if this offering is not resonant for you, I think you really will enjoy this episode. Onyx is brilliant and fierce and a pleasure to talk to and to collaborate with. So on to my interview with Onyx Fuji, business partner and comrade in all things queer parenting, chronic illness, and therapist life. So hi, Onyx. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Asher. Thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think we're going to talk a little bit, as I said in the intro, about you and who you are. And um, but unlike some of the other interviews, I'm I'm going to be joining you um, and talking a little bit about our collaboration. So um, we will we'll get to that in a little bit. But for now, um, I will ask you the question that I ask my guests, which is, and you can take this wherever you want to um, today, wherever you're feeling it. um, What is, you know, your first memory of being in a body or learning about what it meant to be in a body? Yeah, you know, when you sent me the prompt, um, I thought about it at a few different points and um, I feel like I came up with two answers that probably combined are my answer, um, which is that, you know, so much of who I am in my body um, has to do with chronic illness. Um, And so I think I pushed myself, which maybe there's something to be said for, for the why or the inclination to do this, but I think I pushed myself as an exercise to try to remember my body before chronic illness. And the thing I came to was that I don't have that many memories of my body. Um, I was diagnosed with my 
first chronic illness, um, which is maybe my primary primary chronic illness in a way, which is type one diabetes when I was eight. Um, and so just trying to remember both because of how memory works and also because of how um, intense and persistent um, my health has been uh, for the vast majority of my life. It's, it was sort of hard to, to go further back, but I think somehow the memory that came forward or the memory that came most forward to me was being little and running on the beach. Like I have some pretty set memories from uh, my family I used to spend time on Block Island off the coast of Rhode Island. Um, I'm from uh, Boston area. And I feel like I think I have some real memories of embodiment during that time, um, or at least what I associate them uh, with them mm -hmm. is like a, a free feeling that I don't think I have felt really since age eight till present and at least not in a such a total way so whether it's a fictitious you know kind of like you know uh like idealized dreamscape mm -hmm. memory or whether it's a real memory like I feel like there's there's some part of me that can access that you know when mm. asked to think about it um mm. yeah and and yeah I don't know if you have like questions specific to this but I think a lot of my learning that I existed in a body started you know on December 7th I guess it was 1992 um you know I was hospitalized through the emergency room and you know after many day hospitalization like left with like you know a permanent uh diagnosis chronic illness and um and that has evolved uh yeah over the last 30 years mm. um almost exactly I guess tomorrow will be my what some oh, of wow. us call diversity my 30 year Diversity is, wow. I don't know, 29, 29 is tomorrow, not quite 30, but yeah. So I think there's a lot I could probably say about what my body or what learning about being in my body has been since then. Yeah. I would love if you, you know, wherever you'd like to take that, I would love to hear um, more about it. I think it's, um, I just appreciate that you also, and I, I guess I can, I can relate to this as well, that there's something um, maybe so strong and flooding at times about the, the shift from, especially when you're diagnosed as a child with something that's so all encompassing to, to kind of even try to remember something else um, is sort of the unencumbered, like, the unencumbered body. Um, I often, I don't know if you have this experience, but you know, I often have the first thing that comes to mind is like when people, you know, are, are like doing a guided meditation or something, or, you know, or it's like, imagine yourself as a child and you're running free <laughs> and, you know, like all of these kind of associations. And it's just, I mean, it's a total fallacy that everyone's childhood was like that, but you know, the fact that I think there is something very particular and, you know, I've interviewed quite a few people on the podcast who also kind of have a similar experience to really feeling like uh, challenges with the body, you know, started very early and kind of shaped the entirety of their life. Um, and so I'm glad you have that, the, the beach memory, um, the running on the beach memory, um, but I also, you know, just want to acknowledge that there aren't, I don't know, there's, there's a challenge, I think, with like 
a pure time, you know, time out of time where like our bodies are in some kind of um, more idealized state. Um, I don't know if you ever kind of think about that or, or allow yourself to feel into that, the idea that like you don't have a lot of reference points, I guess, for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think what you just said actually really like resonates this idea of not having a lot of reference points. Um, and I think at least for me, I've kind of experienced this back and forth between wanting to like, quote unquote, like radically accept myself in my body, in my body's experience over the last 29 years. And to be able to say, you know, confidently that I've experienced like those moments of whatever it is, freedom, like wholeness, um, etc. Um, but then there's this other part that's like, no, I don't want to accept that. And the feeling, the loss um, uh, feels so important. And, you know, I think trying to hold some aspect of both has been a lot of my lived experience um, in total, like to be able to like hold duality, um, not just pertaining to my health, but certainly with that as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I think something that also strikes me is though I was diagnosed as a child and certainly like learned like the ins and the outs of like the science and like the like life logistics of um, having type one and like across the way or across that time, I've also like been diagnosed with a thyroid condition, a chronic pain condition, a gastro condition. So like, right, there's been like kind of an evolution of awareness uh, through a medical lens of like what my uh, like embodied experience is. But I think it also took a number of years or like quite a few really to actually allow myself or to be given access, I should say, because I think I really wasn't given access to like any, um, any awareness or any encouragement of like what was happening, like emotionally or cognitively for me, yeah. like being a kid who was sick. And so, you know, sometimes when I think about it, maybe in that sort of like ignorance is bliss trope, I think there were a number of years where what was happening to me physically felt encumbering or felt challenging or felt scary, but it felt so cut off from the rest of me, like, or that was encouraged this sort of like, I remember um, being encouraged, like, you know, by my parents, by doctors, um, even later, I think when I saw a therapist for the first time in my like mid teens to kind of say like, I'm a person who has diabetes, I'm not diabetic, as in like, this is something I live with, not my identity. And I think right. that actually like, I mean, not intentionally, but did so much damage to my sense of self, having to like disarticulate this thing that has really just like permeated, you know, like every lived experience I have, I have with diabetes and these other sort of like physical conditions. And I think with diabetes in particular, just like the degree to which it's like a minute by minute lived experience, oftentimes, like I, I really don't think you know, it does feel to me like much more like an identity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I, I remember actually meeting my my current partner and we were like, you know, early on and like the getting to know you, you know, what's your what's your elevator pitch kind of style um, back and forth and saying to them something like, you know, and also I have diabetes, which is as much an identity as anything else I've said, like much more than an experience and sort of like realizing that to be like, I feel like saying that aloud made me realize like how true that has been to me mm -hmm. in the last, you know, maybe I don't know. 10 years or something like that. But the fact that I live without that awareness for, you know, 19 years um, is sort of startling to me thinking about it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that there wasn't a kind of 
emotional structure, like a structure outside of yourself to, uh, to kind of witness the, the internal experience that you're having of probably, probably of fear and, um, anger and whatever else grief. I mean, all of the feelings that kind of come along with, with that. And, and the fact that that was happening as a child, I think that if you aren't given those, those kind of tools or spaces to reflect on um our internal experience as children we we do tend to kind of just deal with it somehow you know and i wonder if maybe you know i'd, I'd like to get to kind of where you where you are today but just to to hear a little bit more about what what you think the kind of I want to say the cost, but what, what do you think the impact, I guess, was on you in retrospect to not really be, to not have your internal, like the stress reflected back to you, um, as coherent or, you know, that it couldn't be, it's not something that could be easily compartmentalized. Yeah. Um, I think certainly my perfectionism comes from that place. Um, Mm -hmm. I think my level of anxiety comes from that place. Um, I think not feeling good enough comes from that place. Like, I think like a lot of the, you know, kind of like big themes, like in my like self-work and my therapeutic work, um, like big themes in my depression and anxiety, like all stem or many of them stem from that place. Like just in terms of, you know, I think when you live with an illness and or a disability and I mean, actually, I should like as a sidebar, like I think it took me a long time to realize that I do identify as being disabled. And that's something I think I still am like negotiating and navigating for myself as somebody who, um, you know, like has has access to a lot like within my body and within the world, um, but also experiences periods of time and periods in a day where that's not the case. Um, But, you know, just I think for so long kind of being told like you can do everything that everyone else can, or you can like kind of this sort of like benchmarks, like that's like, (laughs) we're not going to let this disease slow you down. Like you got it, you know, kiddo or later, like in adult life, like, you know, when you apply for a job, no one says like, you know, you know, hopefully an ethical job. I mean, I mostly worked in nonprofits and, you know, mental health facilities. So like plus or minus most of the places I worked were thinking to some degree, at least about, um, like self-care, but like no one says like, oh, and if you're having a pain flare or if you're having a low blood sugar, like here's what you're entitled to. You're allowed to need to take care of yourself, um, right. you know, in the same ways that you might like, you know, if you were, I don't know, like breast or chest feeding, if you were having like a medical experience that was more visible and, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that people who do necessarily get good treatment, but I feel like the invisibility of my illness and illnesses has really um, kind of created this space of feeling like the expectations from the outside are that I perform at the same level as though I weren't dealing with any of this. And then when I really stop and think of the size of everything I'm dealing with, I'm like, it's just not possible. And so, you know, I think for a long time, it just led to me like pushing so far past my capacity limit like, I think, you know, hearing about the spoon theory when I was like, I guess in my twenties or so, and like kind of thinking about this idea of like, oh, like nobody has 
endless capacity, but certainly dealing with the things I deal with daily diminish my capacity. And when I exert beyond my capacity one day, then what happens the next day and the next day and the next week, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think like for a long time, I just like lived in this space of being so taxed beyond anything that I like wasn't really feeling. I think I was just like sort of like a, I was doing, but I wasn't feeling and I certainly wasn't being. And I think that that's something I've only really come to to recognize and try to do something to upend like in the last uh several years and actually probably in the time that you and i have known one another (laughs) yes i just want to echo that um sentiment that i really as someone living with um an invisible chronic illness um that's not the same at all um we have different experiences but that i i like that framing of you know, being kind of blocked off from feeling because so much of your um, kind of body exertion and psychic exertion went towards doing and doing at the level that um, everyone seemed to think you could do and perform. And you certainly have, Um, you know, you certainly have. And I think that you and I both, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but you and I both have kind of um, hit a lot of, uh, walls, I guess, when it comes to that strategy, um, that strategy really not working, um, any longer, probably never was really working, but it certainly, um, has, has ceased to work. Um, I think for both of us in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So can you just back to the, maybe we'll just go back a little bit to, um, Kind of what you think living with type one diabetes, especially, you know, as someone who maybe didn't have, well, I I won't say this, didn't have, but just in a world, I guess, where, you know, that is not related to always or is as a disability or is not always acknowledged or, or understood at all um, actually, um, and the misperceptions about, um, you know, the condition and all of that, like, how has that, um, how do you think that has affected you and what has that actually been like? Um, and you can, you know, kind of take that wherever you'd like to. Yeah. Um, I guess the, the first thought that jumped in my mind was isolation. Um, And I don't mean isolation in the sense that I think, you know, I think many disabled people deal with the physical isolation from others because of accessibility. And that's something I haven't, um, by and large, struggled with um, outside of very like temporary periods, like in a hospital or when I've had to be, you know, in bed for periods of time. But um, but in the in the day to day of my life, that hasn't been like a dominant thing. So I guess I mean more isolation in the emotional sense. And, you know, um, I've often said, like, especially to close people in my life that I really wish that each of them for five minutes could feel what a really bad low blood sugar looks like and feels like, because Mm -hmm. it's like absolutely terrifying. And sometimes I think about the fact that I have felt and lived with that terror feeling or the possibility of it, like so many times across, Mm -hmm. you know, the majority of my life. And, and I think certainly it's not the only thing. I mean, I think for many people living with type one or type one folks like that, it's, um, it's, it's funny, like that language sneaks back in. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm just diabetic. It's not like living with 
anything. Um, right. You know, but uh, my friend and I used to kind of like sardonically joke, we're like dying with diabetes, right? You know, like this mm. sort of like for life till death. We have funny tattoos about it. But anyways, <laughs> I digress. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that like, I think the two of the major things are, yeah, like sort of like the physical events and occurrences and then also like the, the worry like the long-term worry about longevity about further disability about you know just the many many ways that diabetic people often like are dying or do die um and so you know like i think all of that reality mixed with some of the physical sensations that are just so beyond what like a typical certainly a typical eight-year-old but even a typical 30-something would deal with um, I think creates a lot of isolation in relationship. And, you know, I think, you know, I certainly feel like I, you know, I think I'm a very like communal oriented human being. My relationships are my entire life. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think that probably relates actually to my, my illness in some ways, just like the quality of being in connection is something that provides healing that most other things don't. Um, mm. But I, I'm really aware in a way of like, that there is a limit to what somebody else can understand and at times that just feels like well that's reality and we all deal with that right we all hold different identities and experiences and like a part of relationship is finding like bridges um and like pathways to connection but at other times it just feels impossible and you know and i think certainly also there comes with that a lot of fear of like if someone really knew what it took to take care of this or of me who would do that? Who would ever want this? Who would choose this? I certainly wouldn't choose this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, you know, shows up a lot in terms of inner feelings of isolation, even if externally I have, you know, friends, community, partnership, a child, right? Like all of these things that make me feel a lot of abundance and in, in connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just sitting here nodding because I can really relate to what you're saying. Um, yes, I, I agree. And I hear that, that like kind of as in your, probably in your quote unquote best moments of feeling, you know, really, I don't know, freed up, I guess, in some ways around um, like what feels possible community, you know, like, I have a child, all of these things feel possible. And, and yet it's, there's still the kind of background noise or worry or concern or management um, that is, it is really hard to kind of understand to what extent someone else or uh, other people could really be with you in that worry or concern or, you know, and I, I don't, I don't know if you found that in relationships with other people who, who have type one diabetes. I mean, do you feel like that has, if that has come close to something akin to, you know, feeling seen and heard in a, in a much deeper way? Yes, like absolutely, like infinitely, actually, when I was in actually when we were in graduate school together, I, I don't really know what like pushed me to do this, but I was having a conversation with a, a friend who I'd gone to high school with who had developed diabetes after after the time that we were in school together. And we were connecting around just like both wishing that there was more community. And I had said something 
to them about how like I'd always had this thought about starting something, some kind of group, some kind of space. And they were like really encouraging me. And I was like, you know what? I have a Facebook account. Facebook is good for nothing, but maybe it's good for this. And I like, <laughs> you know, set up an account and I posted about it. And, um, and you know, I knew, you know, it was one of those things, like I knew four people and they knew four people and, you know, the group like gradually populated and people were like sharing their stories and just, you know, like getting to know one another. And I mean, it felt amazing. And I think just like saying something and instead of like screaming into the void, you get 10 people nodding or saying like, oh man, like that happened to me last month. And like, here's how I dealt with it. Or like, here's the fucked up way that my doctor didn't address what I was actually worried about. Or yeah, here's the ways that it's impossible to really explain any of this. Huh? And like, I think that that felt so incredible. Um, and then I will say, even within that experience, at some point, I think I was like, well, I want more queer and trans folks in this space. So I posted that group in queer exchange um, in New York, where I was living at the time. Um, and one of the people who um, who joined the group and I, I, I don't really know how the two of us just like got to talking. I guess it's like we both lived in Brooklyn. We're both queer. We're both non-binary. We're both diabetic since childhood, you know, et cetera. There were like enough touch points that we started talking more one-on-one. -on -one. We, we had some meetups in New York and Massachusetts um, for the group and, you know, different conglomerate and different folks got together and met. And, um, and, you know, somehow when Kate and I connected, we wound up yeah, just like growing a friendship, like outside of that space. And, um, you know, we've actually really fallen out of the practice, which I think is just, you know, so many things in life have happened to both of us. Uh, we became friends before I became a parent. And I think my becoming a parent probably did no favors to our more like day to day contact. But we really started communicating like all throughout the day, like, hey, I just took my blood sugar. It's this. And then they'd be like, oh, I should check mine, too. It's that. And like, just like mm -hmm. really talking back and forth. And I have to say it was pretty incredible and like maybe it's not surprising but it kind of shocked me how much my health and overall sense of well-being improved during the time that we were doing that um mm. and yeah i mean the two of us have talked a lot about you know future ways of bringing that idea forward and i know you and i are kind of similarly and differently thinking about ways of of like kind of centering the real value in having someone else just be like yes and and like really come together and and like share in that way um because i don't think this experience is unusual but i do think it's often very silent or very invisible or very disconnected because of all the ways we're told to kind of like push through um and push yeah. against and like kind of exist in spite of ourselves rather than like with ourselves or like in solidarity with ourselves <laughs> yeah that's it's really yeah, that really, um, it makes sense, but it's also affirming and helpful, I think, to hear those stories about, about ways and moments that, um, that that connection certainly doesn't heal us, you know, like you and I both live with, um, non, you know, conditions that can't, that at this point in, in the world don't, are not solvable. Um, but that there is a way that, you know, quality of life can really improve just through those, the kind of being known, um, being more deeply known. Um, and, and yet it's hard to sustain as, you know, this is like something you and I have talked about. It's hard to kind of sustain those structures, um, 
especially when I think our the way that our medical system and the way that our our relationship to ability and disability, those kind of like those frameworks like really reinforce this idea that, you know, if it's really bad, if you're really sick, then you probably need some help. You know, you should reach out, you should go to therapy, you should get some support, you know, right. And when you have something, when you're dealing with whatever it is, if it's a chronic illness or, you know, multi-systemic oppression, there isn't like a, sometimes there, there are more acute moments, um, but the lack of kind of support and witnessing um, and accompanying each other in these struggles is, is not something that I, you know, I haven't figured out exactly in my own life, how to, mm-hmm. to kind of integrate that sort of daily, if not daily, but just frequent accompanying of other people. Yeah. It feels like an impossible question, right? Yeah. Like if there was like a, a magical bandaid that would like exactly cover, you know, the cover the, the, the thing that is trying to not even be healed, but just trying to be like solvent um, or sustainable. Like mm-hmm. what would that thing be? And obviously mm-hmm. it's a question you and I have been very actively trying to answer in ways recently, which we'll get to, but you know, I think it's, that's the thing is it's like, what would it be? I mean, it would be like, I, it's, I almost can't even like dream the possibility because it feels so removed from capitalism, right? It feels so removed from the white supremacy. It feels so removed. I mean, it's just like, I, I really can't like, you know, I'm like, you know, short of like going and like divesting completely and finding. So I don't even know what would be, I'm not like a real like outdoors person. So I really don't know, but it just feels <laughs> like, you know, where, where is the place where I can just exist comfortably in my space mm-hmm. and have access to all of the things I need for my health. And then also all of the things I need for my well being and like, you know, and it's like sustain in any kind of meaningful way, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it's, it's you're existing um, against the current in a lot of different ways. Um, and yeah, you're doing your best. I mean, maybe this is a good, this is a good segue into kind of what, what brought us together again to, you know, we did go to graduate school together. We're both therapists um, and we both went to Smith School for Social Work and that's how we met. Although I'm sure that, you know, in the weird uh, world of queer life, we may have interact, you know, intersected in some other, for some other reason, Um, who knows, but it seems likely. but that's where we met. But, you know, what brought us together and reignited, I guess, some conversations. And I think that probably, you know, I'll just speak for myself is, you know, I'm not sure that we, well, we didn't actually, and I'm not sure we would have had these, the same conversations we're having now about um, kind of centering our, uh, need for for sustainability in the same way um that we we would have years ago when we were in graduate school um and i think that does speak to sort of what you were saying a while ago about you know it's it's only been within the past couple of years for you and also for me um that that there has been a sort of 
prioritization of being able to feel all of the the kind of grief and challenge of um, trying to perform something that we just can't continue performing um, in our lives, like a role that we can't continue to perform. Um, our, our bodies in various ways sort of haven't allowed for that. Um, and what do we do? That's kind of what I, what I think allowed us to reconnect in this way. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just, as you were talking, trying to think about when you and I first met and like where I was and where you were and what I knew about you and how we were connected. And, and yeah, I mean, I certainly agree. I think we would have inevitably met somehow, some way, what be it, you know, Western Mass, Brooklyn, the weird woo-woo world that is queerness, you know, I'm sure it would have occurred in some way, but like, I was trying to think about like, yeah, I think I knew that you were a fellow chronically ill person. Like I definitely knew that. Um, but I was thinking about, well, like, why didn't we really talk about that back then? And, mm. you know, I, I think it must have been, or it must, have, I, I can only believe it's because I knew you in my like academic professional life. And there had been so much fueling my feeling across the years that that is a space where you need to make your illness and your disability as small as possible Mm. um or just find a way to like weave it into the fabric like somehow or some way but like that's just like not possible and like you know earlier when you said something about yeah about like kind of not being able like that we've both kind of realized that at this point in life and I I 100% think that's true and I also feel like what I I, what's aspirational I don't know if I'm I don't think I'm there yet is that I don't want to like whether I'm able to or not like I don't want to feel that I am beholden to an infrastructure that doesn't uphold me or people with experiences like mine. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, maybe like a way that you and I reconnected, you know, around this, it, it did feel kind of random in a way. It's like we were talking and then you would mention the podcast to me at one point. And I think at the time I was like, I would love to, and I just capacity is like so past. And then we kind of dropped it for a while. And I think it was through exchanging holiday cards last year that it like came back up and then you know it's like one of those things where I'm like how did this even happen but yeah like I think it is just like somehow I feel like I've even lost your question but like yeah somehow like maybe being in a moment where we've both kind of um like turned towards ourselves has sort of like allowed for this part of our connection to be present um and that's I think right that, you know yeah. that's something I'm think I'm thinking about and we've been talking about a lot is like the real value of especially as therapists, but also just as people to be able to turn towards the self, like see and feel the self and like respond um, and engage with and be in relationship with like, you know, with the world, with your people, with your clients, you know, patients, et cetera, like from that place as being an asset and not a deficit. Right. Right. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of what has happened on on my end of things i i completely agree and what has happened on my end of things is that you know most recently i you know interestingly all of our sort of ways of being and intersecting ways of being sort of you know came together when i had to take you know a, a medical leave for for surgery and recovery and you know you were one of the people that 
was able to kind of both understand and provide some emotional support and also kind of help me talk through the dilemmas of what it means to be a therapist who holds space for other people and how how challenging it is to kind of step away from that um, when we need to. We aren't we aren't taught how or in what way um, to do that, really. I mean, there there's such a superficial acknowledgement of like, oh, well, burnout or self-care or, you know, take some time off. But the, you know, the psychoanalytic model of, of you know, August, take take the month of August off, right? Like isn't... Uh, doesn't really work um, for bodies that don't that don't work on that timeline, right? You know, and so um, I've I've really found such like kind of solace in our our reconnection because of that shared acknowledgement just of the dilemmas that we're facing, and so maybe we can you know just talk a little bit about what we have created and what we're hoping to continue to create together. Do you want to start? Yeah. Um, I'm like, where do I start? I'm like, I know. Uh, you know, I, I think where we arrived, like, I think that it was sort of like many conversations that generated where we are now, which is thinking about building and please jump in and save me. I feel like moments like this, I always get that like deer in the headlights. What are we doing? But like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just like, uh, you know, like building, like it's a business, but I think even more than that, it's like a practice um, and an offering to like our like shared community of of therapists, um, of folks doing care work, um, who many of us ourselves are also in need of of care and who are also like struggling and in some cases suffering. Um, and you know, I think we we thought many times and in many different angles about well, what is the offering? And I think one of the most interesting things about it is I feel like we were simultaneously talking about like what can have the biggest impact outward? Like how can we best like meet the need, offer something really meaningful to folks like us simultaneously to the impact inward? And like, how can we do so in such a way? Because I think we were talking so much about like being a therapist. I think I, think I speak for both of us when I say is like probably like one of the greatest parts of my life. Like it's one of the things that I find them feel the most fulfilled by. Yeah. Um, it's something I feel so connected to. It's something, yeah, that just feels so intrinsic. And and yet, you know, care work is exhausting um, and time consuming and requires a lot energetically. And so, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into like how to make sure that one is restored um, and and you know and sustained in order to practice, like not just like ethically, but also like really um, compassionately. And so, I think we were sort of talking about like, well. Well, how do we do both of those things at once? How do we create something that offers a lot outward and also gives to ourselves inward? And shouldn't that be possible? So yeah, I think Kintsugi Therapist Collective has become what we are building um, as a as a place for folks in um, you know folks therapists for folks kind of entering or evolving private practice, um, which I think so often comes out of a place of need, right? To need to, to disengage from um, like systems of mental health care that often don't uphold clinicians and especially not clinicians who have any sort of needs outside of the most like bare bones of, yes. yeah, you get your month off in August kind of situation. So, but a place for folks who are trying to figure this out 
to get support and mentorship and connection and like assistance with like, yeah, building businesses that really have like staying power and longevity and that like what we're trying to build in this for ourselves is like business owners also like offers folks ways of thinking creatively um, and collaboratively in the sort of group that we're hoping to form about um, yeah, like how to do that in ways that really feel meaningful, um, and connecting and, um, (laughs) and yeah. 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 And I think that part of the reason that the container, you know, I guess that's how I think about is like the Kintsugi therapist collective is, is a container for, um, it's a community. It could be, you know, we hope it it will become a a larger community, but it also, I think reflects sort of a good place to put a lot of our dilemmas, right. And a lot of also the, the things that we have learned together and separately, but also together in terms of that, like turning towards the self and, and being able like our connection, you and I, our connection with each other in part, has deepened because of the turning inwards. Right. And that's, it's sort of like a model of what we hope that the, the clinicians and the care workers that we will work with, you know, can, can start to, you know, within the bounds of safety and, and realistically, but can, can incorporate into their lives and into their lives as, as, you know, care workers in, in some form of um, private practice or business. And I think the reason that it's possible or the reason that I'm motivated to do that with you beyond the fact that you're, you know, a really excellent clinician and smart and, you know, insightful and wise and all of these things um, is that you and I both, I think, really share, um, we really share a kind of belief in like a foundational belief in engaging in therapeutic work in service of a more collective possibility of liberation. And that's important to both of us. And I think what we have both maybe bemoaned or been really, really, uh, struggled with in our in our professional and personal lives is the way in which our kind of body experiences um, and chronic health challenges and and frankly you know like and and this is where you know our experiences are different I'm like you know I'm a white person um, coming to this with a, a degree of privilege that is very different from many of the people that we potentially will will work with and is you know differentiates my experience from yours but that you know we both are queer non-binary you know parents um and we are very invested in these ideals right and yet it is hard to to uphold them when you're sick right and when you feel mm-hmm terrible. So how do we, how have we over the years and also how can we, um, in community and as, you know, as, uh, 
a team essentially really re-engage like I feel like the Kintsugi Therapist Collective kind of helps me think about re-engaging with the things that matter most to me about being a therapist and it's it's only because I have you you know I have this Mm -hmm. structure right like this this sort of support. Um, cause I can't, I actually can't do it alone. I think that like living in this queer body project is alive and well, and yet it is, it is not, it's mine and it's not something that is always easy or feasible for me to kind of operate alone. Right. Um, and so this is kind of a, this feels like a very supportive start from, from the get-go for me. Yeah, absolutely. Somehow when you were talking, and I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but it sort of feels like the point to me in a way is that being like working towards liberation and being sick actually should not be at odds with one another. I think they're actually like compatible and reinforcing of one another. And yet because of the ways in the kind of earlier in the interview, when I was talking about like kind of the messages I got when I was young, and it sounds like you've got similar ones, Mm -hmm. right? We've grown to believe that like I recently, actually, I I really have such a hard time having to ever cancel a session, um, which as a sick person is kind of a a rude awakening because too bad that's going to happen sometimes, right? For, For ethical reasons and just physical limitations. And, and recently I had to cancel with a client who similarly like, you know, lives in a queer non-binary disabled body and I felt so guilty about it and so badly about it because of you know I knew what they were going through I knew what the session likely meant to them right et cetera, et cetera. and then we came back in the next time and I was you know to some degree apologetic and just acknowledging and they said to me how kind of um healing it was for them actually to see me set a limit based on my own need for care and my own need for healing and my own need to be disabled. And, um, and yeah, it was just a good reminder. Like, I think now, especially, yeah, like, you know, being um, like, you know, covering for you so that you could heal from your surgery. Like I am really aware of it now, right. The ways that we're both relational in our work. And I think about that a lot, like, how can I be relational and then do this, like, fake it, like I'm okay thing with right. my clients and like I'm just reinforcing this very thing that I want to tear apart and take down and so yeah I guess just yeah like instead seeing it as yeah like well how do we do this in a sustainable way and I do think like doing it together um and having the kind of support like this like tight support loop that you and I have like built over the last many months working on this for me has been so eye-opening kind of in a similar way to um, my relationship with, you know, with my friend Kate that I was talking about earlier, just to like, oh, when you're not alone, so much more is possible because when you're having a moment where you can't, maybe someone else can, or maybe yes. you both can't and you're just not alone in that. And I think all of that mm-hmm. is so, you know, just like revelatory for me to, to notice and to feel. That's it. That's the thing. That's exactly it. I, I love that. And I really feel that. And I'm still, um, I think, as you said, because of the structures that we end up, unfortunately, or, you know, unwittingly reinforcing, it's hard to really stay with that kind of, um, that maybe it is an aspirational, you know, notion, but I think I'd rather sort of rest in an aspirational business practice than um, 
then rest in one that's um that really doesn't ultimately serve me or the people I'm working with or you know frankly doesn't doesn't function to dismantle the the structures that that are kind of causing the harm um and so yeah. I really you know I think this is we're excited we'll just say we're excited to you know be doing this and we're um we're really glad that you know we have or i'm really glad and i think you're really glad we have this opportunity to kind of give this a try um and see if we can you know be in community and be of service to other people who who are similarly situated um but i really I really appreciate your um, you doing this interview and also just being a person in the world that I can um, collaborate with and feel supported by. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like ditto isn't nearly enough, but I feel like similarly, yeah. I mean, it was really, I was really excited to have this interview with you, um, not because hearing my voice, especially not publicly, feels like a great joy to me. It's actually terrifying to me, but because I feel like when we talk, there's always just like a deep level of connection and resonance. And, and yeah, I think that that's kind of what, I think that's certainly what our relationship offers to me so consistently. And it's something I really hope, and I know we're going to continue to think about how to, how to offer that, um, like to the folks we, we connect with through this project and this practice. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. And I'm excited to see where this takes both of us. Awesome, me too.